Hey, this is Chris Burns. Welcome to Beyond the Show. This is our opportunity to go a little bit deeper than we can in our hour on the air. So I hope you enjoyed our initial conversation with Eric Erickson. For the next 25, 30 minutes, we're going to dig deeper with him into all sorts of questions. Quick plug, if you don't currently get our daily update, you can just go to dynamicmoney.com. It's something that goes out on the radio, but if you're not a regular radio listener, you can bring it straight to your inbox simply by signing up online. I write a one-minute update. It's about two or three paragraphs. comes straight to your inbox and keeps you informed about everything that you need to know in the financial world that day. So again, you can get that daily update at dynamicmoney.com and enjoy our extended conversation with Eric Erickson. It is your dazzling blue eyes. So I'm with uh, Eric Erickson. <laughs> what a way to start. Uh, and just ha- thank you for letting me into your beautiful studio office. I've told you before that uh, if you ever want to get rid of the gorgeous painting of Lincoln that's behind us, we can do that. Yeah, that's uh, not I can happen. find a home for it easily. There's a lot of places I could do that. Uh, but thank you for coming on uh, the show and just spending some time with us. I, I kind of want to hit two different things because of of your expertise. One is in your wheelhouse, and that's talking a little bit about what's going on with the 2020 election, and, spe- and not 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 in as much political punditry as it is. What's it going to mean, some of the financial implications? And I have some some questions just because of your background, knowing these people, um, about some of the major decisions I feel like have been kicked down the road and why are they being kicked down the road, especially when it comes to entitlement programs. But then do you see hope for change for that? Um, so we'll dig into that a little bit. Um, but the other I want to start with is just I like to dig into this with people, your actual financial background. So um, I don't know if a lot of people know about your background. I know a little bit about it, but you know, you in, in the context you grew up in, I find most people were taught about finances without much ever being spoken. So, what mm. did you learn? What, what were some of the things that you were taught, good or bad, about finances, just from your context and how you grew up? Honestly, nothing. Um, I, I was self-taught. Uh, we, my dad worked offshore in the Persian Gulf. We lived in Dubai. He would be gone seven days. He'd be home seven days. Um, we, we never talked about it. My mother was and still is super skeptical of investments. It was always get a savings account and earn stable interest. Sure. Uh, I, I taught myself how to balance a checkbook. Uh, and really, when I was in high school, got into studying investments and how to invest and what to invest and uh, joined the, what, the, the national in, in little investor or whatever group on how you do the charts and stuff. And I taught right, myself yeah. all that. And then my mom wouldn't let me get an investment account to invest my, so I just spent my money uh, that I got for high school graduation. It, we, we were not a house that had fiscal discipline. And essentially it was, it, frankly, it's, it's kind of where I am right now. And I, I'm recognizing old patterns and wanting to get out of them. My dad made enough money. My mom balanced a checkbook. I didn't know what my dad made and mm. no one talked about it. And then ultimately my my parents wound up having to spend a lot of their savings to save my grandparents um, mm. when they were older, and that's ultimately gotten my parents in a bind. And I just, I, you know, I'm sure my kids will get there one day too. They, I see the mistakes my parents made, and I don't want to repeat them. And I'm sure I'm making mistakes I'm not aware of that my kids won't want to repeat. And I just hope they don't make the mistakes my parents made along the way. Well, that's one of the things I was going to ask you because what I've encountered is you see this generational gap where people don't talk about money, mm-hmm. um, and that was very normative for our parents, for our grandparents. 
grandparents especially. So your parents' experience of having to bail their parents out, has that changed the way they've talked with you about money? Or has it pretty much still been, you know, we don't talk about that, even though they experienced the fallout of what that looked like? No, we still don't. And that that's my parents, I guess, they're of the generation that wasn't the boomers, but the, the pre-boomers. That They're in the weird generation where my grandfather was not in World War One or World War Two. He was too young for the one, too old for the other. Right. My dad was too young for Korea, too old for Vietnam. So they're in that generation. And they, one of the, I guess, common traits of the generation is you simply do not talk about it. I never remember having a financial conversation with my parents other than the stock market is gambling, mm. uh, which I don't believe. Uh, and I think I just, I worry because now I'm so busy, uh, TV, radio, and everything else that I don't have a fight. I mean, honestly, this is why I rely on you. Um, <laughs> I, 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 full disclosure, I am a client of Chris's too, in addition to a friend, because I, I know now... In addition to having never learned the financial sense, I don't have the bandwidth to do what I think I should be doing. Sure. Uh, well, I understand that. It's, it's funny. When I look at my own life, um, you could sit and talk with me for hours about this stuff, and I'll gladly give you advice. And then I look at my life and go, oh, man, you know, I make some of the same mistakes. That's what and I do just, on radio with reality. other people, too. <laughs> <laughs> don't say that. That's you do that. <laughs> so, you know, radio. Um, how are you handling this with your kids? I have three kids. I've got uh, 16, well, about to turn 16, about to turn 14, and a four-year-old. Um, and people assume that I must just be so good at talking <laughs> to my kids about money because it's an area that I've discussed so much. And then certainly uh, with my background, when I was a youth pastor, I you know, talk with kids all the time. And I do find that like, man, I feel like I should have been doing so much more over the years. So do you feel like you've been able to break that cycle and what are you doing with your kids to, to help them figure this out? You know, I haven't and I know I need to because they're now at the age they're 14 and 11. They're at the age to start participating mm. and right now they essentially view me as a bottomless pit of money from which they can withdraw <laughs> right. to buy video games and other stuff. My my 14 year old is my daughter who's reached that level of awareness that I'm actually not. Uh, my 11 year old is starting to get a clue that, you know, maybe I, I can't go ask dad to buy the new video game every week. Should we bring him into the room for this yeah. part of the discussion? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. You, you, you could be our, our financial therapist tonight and get us all around the table, but I, I know I need to get them involved. And I really have been toying with the suggestion you had given me a while back of sit down with them and actually do what my parents refuse to do, which is here's how much I actually make. And here are all of our bills, and this is what's left over. Yeah. So actually, the times I've seen this done, it's it's mind-boggling for kids. When, And this is hard to do, but when you pull out an actual full paycheck of cash, and it takes a while to do it because there's laws. Now, you don't want to get flagged by mm-hmm. the government for pulling out money or whatever. But you pull out the equivalent of a gross paycheck. You put it on the kitchen counter and actual cash. See, I don't know that I'm there yet. Actual that. cash. And then your kid's eyes are the size of like Frisbees, right? It's like, holy cow. But then you just start taking off the table. Oh, here's the taxes and here's our groceries and here's, you know, the savings we're doing for the future and everything. And I just, it's one of those things because it's so concrete that they'll never forget. And I, and I love the idea of just creating something that, you know, 20 years from now, when you ask your son, he goes, I remember when you did that. Mm-hmm. I remember that that stuck in my mind because there's so many things that we don't remember, at least that right. I don't retain. Um, 
another thing, there was an article out recently that was fascinating to me, and, and it was uh, I was in Slate. I can't remember the article who, who the author was, but she basically said, "I ruined my kids' college dreams, and you should too." That was kind of the premise. Yeah, I saw you actually push that out on Twitter. And the best part about that article is not the idea of actually we want to ruin our kids' dreams, but it was the idea that we don't have these kind of conversations with our kids. And the reality is most of us can't stroke a check for 75 grand a year for them to go to, in this case, the kid wanted to go to art school in New York. (laughs) And the parents were like, look, we just, we can't. So they had an actual conversation. Like I think she was a sophomore in high school and Mm -hmm. said, we already know based on our savings, this is how much we can spend. And, you know, based on that, let's talk about what your options are. Because, yeah, you can choose to go take out a bunch of debt. What does that actually look like? And I feel like not only does that prep the kid for college, but then it also is just subversively teaching them decisions actually have, you know, like to make a decision based on the actual money and not just based on, you know, you can be whatever you want to be. You can be an astronaut, whatever you want. The kind of that that thing that we grew up with, at least that I grew up with, which Mm -hmm. was do whatever, be whatever, without ever discussing what does that look like? Right. Well, and you know, I, I I will admit, I don't think I've even said this on my show. Uh, My first paying job was when I was in college. Yeah. I I did not have a part-time job when I was in high school. My my 14-year-old already wants to go start. And I I did do odd babysitting jobs here and there. Grew up in Dubai, though. One, I I couldn't have a job until we moved back to the States. Uh, But then we were out in rural Louisiana. There was really nowhere to work. Um, My my dad didn't have the family farm, so I wasn't going to work on the farm. I I had my summers and would hang out with my friends and didn't do anything. And so the money that I saved was typically – my parents didn't give me an allowance. If I did want money, I had to do chores around the house. Right. And I would save that money uh, and occasionally do odd jobs occasionally to get money. It wasn't until I went to college and my parents really had no concept of college and costs. And they're like, we're giving you a hundred bucks a month to cover your gas, your food, everything you need, your college textbooks, all of that. And I was like, this isn't going to work. It's like ramen and, noodles at that point. Right. Yeah, and right. so I, I, I did go out. I, I got a job on campus and then started working during the summer, at which point, you know, my parents, of course, were in the winter. Why aren't you coming home for the summer? It's like, well, I have this thing called a J-O-B. I, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> right. Uh, and it, it – but I had to learn those things myself. And unfortunately, I made the the freshman college mistake of getting credit cards, too. Um, at the time, convinced myself, I really need this. My parents aren't giving me enough to sustain myself. And then, right. of course, getting in the trap of, okay, my income hasn't increased, but I've got this credit card bill now. What am I going to do? And that pushed me into getting a job. Yeah, I'll never forget my, my freshman year in college walking down this row of credit card options. It, <laughs> right. it was like, it was like a shopping mall with every single booth. There were a festival, but every booth was just a credit card hawking their wares mm-hmm. to you. And as, and you're like, wow, it's a, a free money. Yep. Here we are. Um, all right. So because you were so self-taught, uh, what are some things you didn't expect? What's a mistake that you feel like you made financially? Um, I'm sure you've made tons. Oh, of I've no, made no, lots yeah, no. of mistakes financially. Uh, but what's one thing that that you because that you never expected that 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 you've discovered over time um, and had to kind of teach yourself and, and maybe you learned it through making a mistake. The the one that is actually so obvious now that wasn't at the time was the unexpected, unforeseen expense. Uh, I, I knew I was going to have to pay this much for lights and this much for water and this much for gas and this much for food. Oh, crap. My car broke. Where am I going to get the money? Credit card. 
Right. Um, and then having to readjust the balances because now the credit card bill is higher and, and not being not putting money away in savings to be able to take care of those expenses. Yeah, that that's definitely my story too. One of the reasons we talk so much about that is that it's just if you have the kind of mind that's a structured mind, then when you budget, it's hard to sit and budget for the unexpected because mathematically you want to sit and go. I have, I have people sometimes come up to me and just go, when we talk about building an emergency fund before you pay off your all your debt, mm-hmm. they go, well, the math doesn't work. And the answer is, well, it's not really about math, though. It's about life. And life doesn't always equal math. And that's the problem is that we can't plan for when the house has an issue or the car breaks down or whatever that is. Right. Yeah. So how do we teach our kids that? That's the question, right? And it's Yeah. It's yeah. A, We're it's working a, on that. It's a work that's what progress. I have you for. <laughs> that's <laughs> I'm actually going to just send my kids up to Dynamic Money and let them hang out in the just office Just come hang day. out and yeah. talk. Okay. Um, all right. I, I want to just shift a little bit into... Um, weirdly a similar vein. So if you think about our government, it's an, it, it's a simplistic view, but it helps sometimes to think about like a household budget where you go, all right, you have a certain amount coming in, you have a certain amount going out, you want to have savings in theory. You know, there's this idea of how do you budget for government? And often we reduce it to, well, how do, if a household budgeted the way the government budgeted, we'd be in big trouble. Um, just this last week, there was an op-ed, one of Paul Krugman's in the New York Times, where he basically argued for Hey, look! Why are we so concerned about the debt? Right. You know, the debt's fine, and 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 he has also reasons that you know that right now interest rates are low, so we have no problem paying for the debt, et cetera. Um, but I'm deeply concerned about the debt, uh, especially mm-hmm. because of the incredible growth rate that we've seen, not only in the in overall national debt, but also just the deficit and the idea that we're in this period of incredible economic expansion. And we just ran one of the highest deficits ever. Those don't normally go together. So as someone who's looking at the political landscape, it seems like we've had two years in a row where Congress has, in a very bipartisan, wonderful fashion, put together this Frankenstein-like budget that we can all agree on that. The one thing we can all agree on is spending as much as we want to spend. And so where is the hope? For change here, like where do you see hope for change? Do you, you see know, hope for change? Honestly, even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has now said our debt as a nation is becoming a national security issue. And members of Congress, I've got a very good friend of mine, uh, Chip Roy, who is a member of Congress from Texas, and he put up a debt clock outside of his office. So everybody, all the members of Congress who walk past have to see the national debt. And he is deeply frustrated. There is no will. The Republican solution is we grow the economy enough, we bring in enough money, we're able to pay down the debt. The Democratic solution is we're going to raise taxes. You know, when I was on CNN, um, I would always, we would get into these discussions, and I would always raise this issue. And I would always say to my Democratic friends who would always say, well, the Republicans aren't going to raise taxes on us. If we raise taxes 100%, the amount of money that we would get still would not pay off, not the debt, but the deficit for the year. Right. So what are you going to cut? And it's very clear at this point they're going to have to cut something. And I'm afraid with both sides, they're not going to cut until there's a crisis. Yeah, we were talking uh, with Russ Vote, right? So Russ yeah. is the director of... Uh the Congressional Office, of Management, Office budget. of Management and Budget, the acting director. We'll get this we'll title right. And his response to this was basically, well, hopefully it just gets so bad that they can't avoid it. Right. That was basically, you know, they get so bad they can't avoid it. But what I see them avoiding more than anything else is you know, two-thirds of our dollars coming in are going to entitlement programs. Mm-hmm. And that's only growing. Just It's just going to keep growing. So 
what is it, it, it do we do we really believe and i guess the argument you're making is things are going to get bad enough we're going to address this there's no way to address the budget without addressing those issues right and yet if i remember correctly you can correct me on this when president trump came one of his things he campaigned on was i'm not going to touch these issues yeah that was one of the things he campaigned on and that's going to be deeply problematic paul ryan when he was speaker of the house cared deeply about this issue entitlement reform he, he since he was a a 20 something in washington at the heritage foundation cared about this issue knew it was coming sure. and couldn't convince the president to do otherwise because it is also a campaign issue you're messing with people who their retirement is dependent on social security income they're going to have to do something and nobody in washington has a plan to do it we also have a problem that no one in washington wants to talk about directly related to this is that we are reaching the point of population decline in this country we're going to have way more people taking advantage of medicare medicaid and social security and far fewer people paying in to sustain the programs interestingly enough even george bush when he was president recognized there are enough people who believe they're never going to get anything from social security we're building a constituency for reform it's just going to take a while to get there that's an interesting but yeah, most clients that come into my office, when I bring up Social Security, will say, well, I don't want to talk, I don't want to bank on that at all. Right. Right. They have that assumption. And I would actually say the reality is probably even younger people will have something there. It will yeah. just keep changing. Um, but I guess that's, that's the question is, can you be, at what point is this an issue that someone can still get elected? If I, my guess would be this, and I don't, I don't know the president, all, if, but if you sat down with President Trump and he was just hanging out and nobody was hearing him and you were just talking with him and said, do we have a problem with entitlement programs and, and the growth of debt? My guess is he'd probably say, yeah, we have a problem. That's an issue, right? right? But if he's out on the campaign trail, he's going to say, I'm not going to touch these because suddenly I'm not, you're not electable at that right. point because there's such a powerful base saying, don't touch our social security, don't touch these you know, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. Um, at what point is that going to be an issue, or, or or do you think someone could run for office and actually get elected in in, 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 in something as big as a presidency and that's a local district, while saying I am going to address these, we have to address these. I don't. It, depending on how they say it, I, I mean, honestly, I, I think you can campaign and get elected saying we've got to deal with the issue, uh, but just don't offer up a plan. Right. Uh, because it's the plan that's going to get nitpicked. And in politics, uh, when you run for office, typically be the guy that conveys competence and trust. Be the guy who recognizes there's a problem and be the person who's willing to say truthful things to people but never actually offer up what your plan is until you get elected because otherwise you're going to get destroyed. I mean, for example, just in real politics today, not bringing partisanship into it, but look at Elizabeth Warren who campaigned on the idea of Medicare for all. It was a great idea for Democrats. Democrats seemingly loved the idea until she got into the specifics of how she was going to pay for it. And she was, she's was she been the only candidate to beat Joe Biden in the Real Clear Politics polling average. She did it for one day, and then her plan came out with how she was going to pay for it. She's now in fourth place. Wow. Uh, never get into specifics. The rest of the candidates, even the ones who actually agree with her, like Bernie Sanders, savaged her because she dared to actually put out her plan. So it's – I remember – I'll never forget uh, – where I was, I was working years ago to church, and he had a brilliant insight. The pastor there, uh, Randy Pope, and he said, "You know, if you ask anybody, was when Obama was uh, campaigning for his t- first term, he said, if you ask anybody what Obama's platform is, they'll immediately say change. Mm-hmm. And if you go, what does that mean? They'll probably have no clue what it means. But the fact that everybody can say change is very, very powerful, mm-hmm. right?" Uh, Similarly, like with Medicare for All, it's great that 
for Democrats, I think, that everybody can say, well, if you ask what's their health platform, it's Medicare for all. If you ask a Republican what's the health, what's our, what's our health platform, no idea. It, it's crickets, right? right. There's uh-huh. no there's no clarity. So basically, you're Turtles saying, all the way down. <laughs> so you're saying for this to work, someone has to say this needs to be addressed, and then give zero specifics exactly as much as possible. That's the way politics works. Yes, I mean, for example, you say change. It goes back even further. George W. Bush was one of the most on message candidates ever. Um, his message was "Help is on the way." It was on all of his billboards in 2000. It was how he spoke. Anytime you ask George W. Bush, um, Governor Bush of Texas, you say that Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security need to be reformed. What's your plan? Well, I think we need to look at every option. We need to try to get people around the table, but I want the American people to know help is on the way. Wow. And he did it. You ask him anything, he ended, but help is on the way. Same thing with Obama, hope and change, that it was on the signs, it was in his speeches. Everyone connected him to that. You've got to be really good at messaging. Wow, that's that's you don't have to be good at you don't have to be good at policy. You got to be good at messaging. All right, so if we go beneath the surface here, your actual hope, your actual <laughs> belief in uh, in this changing without some sort of catastrophic event leading to that, your actual belief in Congress being able to say we're going to address this kind of an issue, and we're that's just one of many issues, obviously. Um, where we make reforms because this does trickle down to our kids and our grandkids and what they're going to experience in this country um, before we reach a crisis point. Is that possible? I don't know that it is. I'm I'm actually deeply pessimistic on this front. Um, It's going to take a coalition of the willing and everyone is willing until they find out the details. And once they find out the details, they become deeply opposed to it. Uh, You've got to be able to find a constituency. The, The only real saving grace here where we may be able to do something, but it's going to take probably another 10 years, is you are going to have to wait for the senior citizens, who are the largest pool of voters in the country, to be a diminished pool of voters. And the new senior citizens, uh, the Gen Xers, who are going to be in their 50s and 60s, are the people who've already expected it's going to go bankrupt. So if we got nothing to lose now, we can fix it. Hmm. Now, that that makes... That makes sense. It's unfortunate and it's reality at the same time, right? Yep. Or the second coming. Or, or the second coming. Yeah, my grandparents, it's funny because I'll talk with them about it and they will rail about it. I mean, because they're, they're, they're very conservative. They'll rail about you know the entitlement programs and the growth and everything else. But the moment that you make it personal and mm-hmm. say, so you're fine with this being changed and your situation's like, whoa. Right. Yeah, well, I don't know about That's that. That's the problem. I don't know about that. Right. So uh yeah that's a that's that's just reality well that's that's uh helpful i mean it's honestly i would rather have a clear view of what's going on in washington than an idealistic view of oh, there's going to be some sort of massive overhaul here and i think every year i find myself getting more and more just maybe frustrated with with the lack of discussion and the the willingness to kick the ball down the road in favor of short term issues um but i also recognize that's just that's, that's just a function of of what we've of the system we have. There's good things about the system, and there's well, also reality. We also because of nine eleven, and nine eleven has a lot to do with it. We have not really had a politician really since Bill Clinton who could paint a long term vision for the future. Whether you liked Clinton or not, and I wasn't a fan of his presidency. I was a kid when he was president, but 
he was building the bridge to tomorrow. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow was his campaign song. And it was all about what's America not going to look like in eight years when I'm not president. What's going to look like in 20 or 30 years. Right. And he did get buy-in with Republicans in Congress ultimately to enact that vision to the last balanced budget we had. Right. It actually turned out being very good for the economy, very good for the people. We went into a recession a couple of years later. George W. Bush started talking about a long-term vision, wanted to tackle entitlements, and then 9-11 happened. And we've basically been in a post-9-11 society where politicians can only rally people around short-term projects. That's actually, I'd never thought about the impact of 9-11. That's fascinating. Because you're right, the last balanced budget, but I hadn't ever put that together of, well, this is the reason that we saw that shift. All right, well, good insights. Last thing I have to ask you is just specifically about cooking because it's your passion. Oh, there you go. So what are you into right now? What is the, what is the cooking? What, what, is, what would you get excited after hours and hours of radio? Because at this point, you have a show every morning from 9 to noon, Then you have, uh, which is all over the state of Georgia yep. at this point. And then on WSB, you are from 4 to 6. And so five hours of radio a day. You finish that. You don't do a podcast with me like this. What is it that you are interested in getting into the kitchen? Uh, you know, on the weekends, I really l- I've got an outdoor pizza oven, and I love to use the outdoor. I like to make breads. I, I shouldn't. I'm more protein, less carbs. Uh, maybe I would lose some weight. Uh, but during the week, uh, just you know, anything. I, I've got this. Uh, I got a fancy induction stove. It gets hot real fast. I can do stir fries real quick. I've got a huge grill um, that is. Just, it's an industrial grill, and I, I mean, I, I can. It's got a rotisserie putting stuff on there. I like it a lot. Now, if you were to ask me, okay, you, you we're we're getting off of here. You got to go cook something for supper. Assuming you have the ingredients in the kitchen to cook it, I would probably do some sort of chicken dish or I would probably grill burgers, um, something easy. You know, if people say I'm a foodie because I like to cook, the reality is I'm a picky eater. Uh, I, I don't necessarily like the restaurants that the foodies like. I just like good old-fashioned food. There's no reason to, to spruce it up. Um, occasionally, I'll get a little wild with stuff. Uh, my fallback dish on the weekend now is I actually, on Friday, when I'm done with my radio show, I will make a dough. It's a 24-hour dough, and on Saturday nights, I'll do deep dish pizzas for the family. Oh, man, like straight-up Chicago, actual... Chicago or Detroit-style deep dish pizza. Lately, I've converted it to focaccia, so it's more Sicilian-style. It's maybe about a half inch to an inch thick. The dough's fermented for 24 hours, and I can do it in the oven. I don't do it in the pizza, in the pizza oven, so it goes a little slower. The flavors meld together, and that's a... we. But you know what? what's so funny about that is when I was in high school... I was I was the good kid. I was not the rule breaker when I was in high school. And my parents would go out of town. They would leave. They'd go on church trips, and, and they they would focaccia. leave me home, and I would make focaccia. Are we allowed to say that on the air? Is that a oh we're a podcast? Yeah, we're, we're good. Okay, I, yeah. I, I could say that on the air. I was not the kid who was bringing friends over to break into the liquor cabinet. My sisters did. I was the kid who was home by myself, actually baking <laughs> pies and making homemade pizza. Making yeah, I was such a nerd. I still am. How, I love to cook. How many nights a week do you cook? Oh, it depends. Uh, you know, with my routine right now, it's so crazy. I really don't cook a lot during the week. So actually part of my problem is we got to, Christy and I have to plan things out better because I'll get off the air and I'm like, okay, what do you want to eat? Well, it's too late. The kids still have homework. Let's go get something to eat. Uh, and yeah. I'll spend two hours driving around town, picking up food for everybody. Well, I get that. And that's why we're working together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Even the drive, the inefficiency of going to six different... I right. notice with my kids that it, I end up going to three different restaurants in that kind of night. Like there's no more... Like when I was a kid, if we were going to go out to eat, 
it was like the end of time. It was like mm-hmm. everything stopped. It was like the Shekinah glory right. shone down on whatever Ryan's buffet or old country buffet. And I would just, it was heaps of macaroni and right. cheese. Like that was my life. Now I feel like literally it's like, well, there's four different restaurants I'm hitting to, and this is and entirely a monster I've created, I think. It but. is. And, you know, I feel that way, too, that uh, I, I will say, by God, I'm going to go to one restaurant, and I'm, they're going to have to all agree. Right. My family's incapable of agreeing on one restaurant for me to go pick up food. Oh, well, if you're going to go pick up food from Outback Forest, the Arby's next door, I would rather get the chicken fingers from. And it totally the is Arby's my next door. My, so my, my 11-year-old is hyper picky. He eats bacon and chicken nuggets. Uh, that's basically it. Um, Which are both worthwhile. Yeah, totally. Totally, but yeah. that's it. That that's about it. So uh, it's hard, but I make do on the weekends. Though I do like to cook. Yeah. Well, I've had one time had the cinnamon rolls, life changing. Uh huh. Would would be glad to try that again. So yeah, at some point I'm going to do a brisket, and you're going to have to come back. I will. So Eric Erickson, again, you can catch Eric. What the best way to listen to you in your morning show if you were in the Atlanta area is to stream it online, mm-hmm. which is Macon's the flagship station. No, it, well, it? Athens is, but they don't carry the first hour right now. So WGAURadio.com or go to WMAC-AM.com. Uh, pretty soon, TheResurgent.com. We're, we're fundraising now to get the money to put the live stream on the website. So pretty soon, you'll be able to go to TheResurgent.com. You can also get the podcast of it by going to TheResurgent.com. And then obviously every afternoon, uh, Monday, every Friday, afternoon. four to six on WSB. Everybody thinks I'm cutting up the morning show and re-airing it. Nope, it is a live show. That's why you look exhausted all the time. Exactly. So, yeah. Tossing it to Doug Turnbull every six minutes. Every six minutes. <laughs> Eric, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Glad to it, have man. you.